Now, this is what we need to talk about. We need to talk about cleansing. Because these are foreign words to us. I mean, we know clean because of Mr. Clean and your bathrooms and stuff. But we don't think of this in a ritualistic sense. And so we hear words like profane and sanctified and cleanse and defiled and holy. And we're like, how's that all fit together? Now, all this is in my notes too. But So basically, this is Gordon Winham. He has put this chart together and somebody else invented the wheel and did a good job. There's no point in reinventing it. The reality is this is how it works. This book is all about how one becomes cleansed. Now, according to Leviticus, everybody starts off in a clean state. That's man's natural default. Even though we're sinners by default, our natural state is clean. And so the, every book begins with this idea that you're clean, except for Israel right now because of the golden calf. But they started off clean before the golden calf, even though they were technically all sinners. And so you all start in this clean state. Now, there are things that can defile you. There are people who are then defi- divided into two groups, clean and unclean. And that's the whole point of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, God says to the priests, your primary job is to make distinction between that which is clean and that which is unclean. Because the primary job of the priests is to say, you're clean, you can come in. You're not, you can't. In order to maintain the righteousness of the temple or tabernacle, so that God can dwell with the people. If the priests fail in making distinction between clean and unclean, the tabernacle becomes defiled, God can't dwell with them, and they don't become unique. They're just like everybody else. And so that's the primary task. So this whole first out of the book is how, what is clean and what is unclean. So everybody is, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's clean and unclean people. So the normal state is clean, but then that can become defiled. You can become unclean through sin, which is a moral behavior thing, but you can also become unclean through non-sinful actions, like coming in contact with death. And death takes several forms. Death is literally touching dead things, touching blood, discharges, and diseases. And so there's two ways. You either act in a sinful way and become unclean, or you touch death, blood, diseases, discharges, and carcasses, or corpses, and you become unclean. Now, if you watch the video, they made it very clear that not all uncleanliness is due to sin. So when it says that a woman who is on her period is unclean and she can't enter the tabernacle, that's not God saying she sinned by having a period. And you're like, oh my gosh, God is horrible and evil. But that's how some people read the book. You can't do that. Now, why are you unclean in that physical sense when you come in contact with death? Because death is a result of sin. The reason that there is a dead body is because there is sin in the world and sin leads to death. The reason that somebody is bleeding out is because there's sin in the world. The reason that your body is not acting the way that it should is because with discharges and diseases is because of sin. And so even though you haven't sinned, you've come in contact with something that is the result of just the general humanity being sent. 
And so it's basically you have sinned and therefore you become unclean or you come in contact with the symptoms of the fall on all of creation. And those symptoms of dead bodies and blood and discharges and diseases are only there because the whole world has fallen and is under sin. Does that make sense? And the point is to help you realize that even if you haven't sinned, even by the fact that you're living in a world of sin is defiling you. Now that should be very clear to us that as a Christian today, you may not have sin specifically, but we come in contact with things in this world that are a result of sin. Corruption in governments, businesses, institutions, families, whatever. And as we come in contact with those things, Yes, we're not guilty of sin and we're not going to be punished for that, but we still come in contact with that and that's defiled us. You need to understand something. I hopefully, I guess the best example of the thing is like, if you watch or listen to enough negativity, eventually you begin to kind of feel the defilement. And you're not really guilty of sin by listening to this person's negativity or their complaining or you watching the news. It's not a sin to watch the news, but the news makes you feel very sick and very dirty as you're watching it. And that's what God is kind of communicating here. You can be defiled by sin, or you can be defiled by the fact that sin is constantly in your face all the time. And unless there's something wrong with you, you're going to feel icky if you sit in it too much. And that will affect you. And eventually it will affect you to the point that you will begin to sin. This is why we say, don't hang out with those people too much. And don't watch the news or those bad things or listen to that kind of music too much. Because eventually it will defile you, and then you'll begin to act like what you see. I'm not saying if you watch the news, you're going to do everything on the news. But you can become very bitter and very negative to the point that it's going to come out in the way that you talk. And you're not going to be the image of God. And then you're going to end up sinning in different ways of just complaining and bitterness and that kind of stuff. And so this is what God is making very clear. Defilement comes in two different ways. And oftentimes we only, as a modern day culture, we only think about behavior. We don't often think about defilement by the fact that I live in this world and what it's really truly doing to me and how it's affecting my actions. Now, if you had to make an animal sacrifice for every single time that you came in contact with the symptoms of sin, it'd be very hard for you to forget that you're being defiled by living in the world. We don't have to do that so it becomes very easy to forget that we're being defiled by living in the world. And so that's the two categories. And so mostly what we're going through, don't think that God is judging or condemning people because they have a disease. He's not saying that you sin, that's why you have discharges. He's saying that you're not whole because of sin in general, either specifically or in general. And so what is cleanliness? What is holiness? One of the points of holiness is that holiness is not only just a uniqueness and a separateness from the world and connected to God, but holiness is also wholeness. Holiness is being whole, being the way that God intended us to be. God had an original design for our mind, our emotions, our social interactions, our physical body. And we are not whole now because of sin in the world. Our logic doesn't function the way that it should. No matter how logical and how intelligent you are, we can all come up with really bad fallacies without God. Your body doesn't work the way it should. Your emotions don't work the way that it should in an ideal way. Our social interactions don't work. 
And the reality is we're all broken. And so part of holiness, where the Bible goes even further, is not just that definition of God is unlike and unique to anything else in all creation, and therefore separate and unfathomable and indescribable. And anything that is then connected to him becomes unique and used by him. But it's also the sense that you're whole. You're functioning the way that you're supposed to in a holistic way. And we don't use holistic terms in here, and mostly because we haven't grown up with that language. And then two, by the time people start using the language, we immediately start thinking Hinduism. But you can use holistic as God's term first. And I don't mean in a Hinduistic sense, but I do mean it in God created you to be good. And when he created the creation and he said it was good, that good means that you're functioning exactly the way that God designed you and you're relating to everything, and you're fitting into all of creation, and everything is working exactly the way it should. And Leviticus is about being whole, about being normal, about being what you were originally supposed to be as a human. And so you need to think that holistic is that way. So when God is coming on the priest and saying, if you have a birth defect, you're not allowed to be a priest, oh my gosh, is that intolerant. But God is not saying you're going to hell because you have a birth defect or I can't use you or you can't be forgiven. He's saying that you're not allowed to function in the tabernacle for a very specific task because you're not whole. And the tabernacle and God is all about being whole. And no matter how many sacrifices you make, you can't undo that birth defect. So you will never be whole. And so think of it less of God saying, I have no place with people who have birth defects. Think of it as the Air Force saying, you can't fly a plane because you're too short. We're not discriminating against short people. We're not saying that you can't be used in any way to serve our country because you're short. We're just saying that every airplane is built to certain specifications and short people can't fit those specifications, period. And that's all God is saying. And we'll talk about that more as we go through, but God is really going to emphasize wholeness, not in that you have to be whole perfectly in a physical sense to be with God, but the idea is to help us think that that's what God intended us to be in the beginning. Then in today's culture, then, you should live out in the forest somewhere with no communication, no people in order to be what you, you know, how do you do that? Good question. That's why when you watch the Tibetan monks on the news and the movies and they're all so peaceful and stuff and the people in the Hollywood say, see, look at those Christians. They yell at their kids and cut people off in traffic. But the Tibetan monks, they're all so peaceful and kind and all that kind of stuff. And look, they're so kind. That's why Tibetan monks and Hinduism and Buddhism is so much better than Christianity because you're a bunch of hypocrites and they're not. Well, this is exactly the point you're making. They're on a mountain all by themselves not talking to anybody. Of course it's easy to be that kind of a person. (laughs) I mean, they've taken a vow where they believe their religion is all about disconnecting from the world because the world is an illusion of the world is suffering, and so they need to disconnect themselves. You throw the three little girls in their house, and they're not going to function that way anymore. Okay? And so, yes, that becomes the thing. Like, it's easy for a priest who hangs on the tabernacle all the time to maybe act that way, but that's where that second half of the book comes in. God knows that you're going to go out there and you're going to get defiled, so he's allowed for repetition or purification. But what's the difference today? The difference is all they had was the tabernacle. You and I have Christ and the Holy Spirit. 
And so why is it now that maybe I actually can live a Tibetan monk love, compassion kind of a lifestyle, even in the midst of the defilement and the grime? And that's because I have the Holy Spirit that I can constantly go to all the time. And the same Christ that resisted temptations on all points of the scale and had victory without sin is the same Christ that is in me. The reason that I oftentimes don't experience that is because I don't make time for him. And the more I spend in the word, the more I spend in the prayer, then I start training myself for God to be the default. And when God becomes the default, when my kids are running in and I'm thinking, how oh, no, I've told you a million times, if I'm not in the word of God, I'm going to default to that frustration and that anger. But the more I'm in the word of God, then it's much easier for me to hear the Holy Spirit say, don't. Or it's a lot easier for me to say, oh God, please help me. And I can tell you, and my wife can tell you many times where we don't always get it right. This isn't me like... But there have been many times where I've just realized, oh God, I can't do this. You've got to give me patience. And it's amazing how quickly that just comes over you and the Holy Spirit begins to give you patience. And you're like, that wasn't me. But if you can do that enough times, then you train yourself to surrender the Holy Spirit. And you can actually begin to live that way in all this stuff. But that's why Satan's greatest weapon against us now is not sin, but creating an American culture that has made us overly committed and overly busy. And we live inside of pinball machines with all the lights and distractions and being knocked all over the place, and we allow ourselves to be that. And then we don't have time for God. And that's why we don't default to God, because we're allowing the pinball machine to rule our life rather than the contemplation. The one thing that we can learn from the monks is that lifestyle of contemplation. Don't stay there forever because that's not being the image of God. But we've gone to the other extreme where we don't ever contemplate at all. And so that's kind of it. So if the idea is you, you walk into the temple defiled and you gain purification so you can gain access to God and rest with him and you rest with him in that sense of rest that I realize that God is in control and everything is good and I take my stresses and I take my to-do list and I surrender to him and I know that this will all get accomplished and if it doesn't get accomplished and it wasn't important after all and that God will take care of me, then I can walk back out into the world and I can enjoy the rest of God as I go back into the world. As the world begins to overwhelm me, then I turn around and I go right back into the tabernacle again. Same idea. Except now I can just stop. And as I'm driving down 315, right there in the car, when I'm fearing all that, I can just start praying to God because I am the temple. And I can begin to worship him. I can begin to repent. I can enjoy that cleansing. I can find that rest. And I can feel restored so that by the time I get home and open that door and start walking the house, I didn't have to take two hours from my wife and drive all the way to church and sit in the sanctuary for a couple hours and then come home. I could do it right there in the car on the way and try to reset myself. After a long day at work, being defiled, I spend the time in the car with God and I can go back out into the world again. The question is, do we do that on a consistent basis? Many times I have, many times I haven't. And I see a difference. And so, yeah, that is a very good question. It's a very important thing to think about. But the answer is the Holy Spirit. The answer is the Holy Spirit. And us training ourselves to spend time in the tabernacle, removing defilement. 
And I can do that in my car, I can do that in the shower, I can do that in my living room, I can do it in my backyard, I can do that in my prayer closet, I can do it at school, I can do it at work, I can do it everywhere, where they only had one day a week. And that's where, once again, when we're going through Leviticus, praise God that this has all been given us a greater access. This is what Jesus meant. Like This is why Paul is saying, why would you go back to the tabernacle when you have the Holy Spirit living in you? That's not only in, not wise, it's not as beneficial, and it's an insult to the Holy Spirit. And so, yes, we're not under law because we have something better now, but that doesn't mean we can't learn a lot from the law. Because oftentimes we've just become so disconnected from the law that we don't realize a lot of what God is doing here for us and what he's allowing us. And so that's cleanliness. So then there's a second stage, and that's sanctification, holiness. Now, this is different. I enjoy cleanliness by me going to the tabernacle and doing the rituals in a certain way. Now, the rituals actually are not what makes me clean. The rituals allow my faith to get put into action. Because the blood of an animal cannot make you clean. I mean, here's the thing. If blood, touching blood, defiles you, then spilling blood out and pouring it on yourself is not going to make you more clean. This is the, 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 the paradox. It sounds like it contradicts itself, but it doesn't. Is that blood can both defile you and cleanse you. But it's not the blood that's really cleansing you. It's you saying, okay, God, I have faith in you. And I'm going to take the time to be with you and allow you to cleanse me as I repent of my sins. The animal sacrifice ritual allows me to put my intangible, abstract faith into tangible, concrete actions. It is very easy to just go through the motions and forget about what we're supposed to do because things up here just don't work all the time. I mean, think about how often you get distracted, your brain goes this way, that way, and you kind of know, but you don't really think about it. But if you do a physical action it forces you to bring the subconscious in the back of your mind to the forefront and actually think intentionally about what you've been thinking about and what God wants you to do. And so this is one of the reasons of Christmas is, yes, the people are saying, well, every day should be Christmas. You should always be thinking about God. Yes, you're right. But at the same time, Christmas is a chance to go through ritualistic actions to allow us to do what we know that is back there, but we often don't intentionally think about to bring it to the forefront. Easter, Sunday, okay, prayer. A lot of people go in a prayer closet. You don't have to go to a prayer closet, but the prayer closet allows them to intentionally think about the fact that they're doing something different. And so we're not under rituals anymore, but you still should be a ritualistic person. As long as you understand that the ritual is not saving you, the ritual is not making a relationship with God right, and as long as you understand what the ritual means. But if you have a ritual that you know what it means, and you understand it's not saving you, but you know that this is just helping me actually take intentional efforts to think about what I'm doing, then amen. That was the whole point of rituals. And so you need to understand that none of this stuff is actually saving them. 
their faith and saying, I'm going to do the ritual that God wants me to do because there's a story in this ritual. And as I retell the story in a physical action, that will help me put my faith into action. And that's what cleanses me. Does that make sense? And we'll talk about that more as we go through the animal sacrifices. I'll go into that again, because repetition is good. But you need to understand that's the point of ritual. So the problem with Catholicism in many churches, and not all Catholic churches, is that they don't understand what the rituals are anymore. And that it's just ritual. But unfortunately, as a Protestant movement, we threw that all out the window, and we forgot that the ritual is still important as long as you understand what it means and you understand that it's a physical outlet for your faith, not the thing that actually does it. And so one of the things my family and I are trying to do is we're trying to create some meaningful intentional rituals. It's kind of hard because for a long time our girls are way, way too young to understand it. Um, but that's, that's, that's important, to come up with your own rituals. And, I, and that should be done through prayer, too. Don't just willy-nilly make things up. But that's what makes you clean. And so you can become polluted or defiled through your sin or touching things that are a result of sin. And you become clean through the rituals, but the rituals just become a physical outlet for your faith. And we'll talk about what, what story those rituals are talk, telling when we get to the actual rituals. And that's what you think of the rituals more as a story that you're acting out or you're going through to remind yourself of something. So then you become sanctified. Now, you cannot sanctify yourself. You can clean yourself through a ritual of faith, but you cannot sanctify yourself. So sanctification is a calling from God. Now, only people who are clean can be sanctified and become holy, but only those who are called by God to be holy can become holy. Now, you, can, you, you are commanded by God to join God in becoming sanctified. So God will say, this is what you do in a ritualistic sense to become holy, but the only way that you're allowed to do that ritual is because I have called you to be holy. And there's different levels of holiness. For example, the firstborn of all the Levit- Levitical priests are called to a level of holiness that other people aren't allowed to have because they're not the firstborn of the Levites. All the other Levites are called to a second level of holiness. Only the firstborn Levites were actually allowed to go into the holy place. But all the other Levites then served as what we would consider more of a priestly, pastoral kind of a sense. That everybody else wasn't allowed. Then everybody else in the nation was called to a certain sense of holiness because they were the covenant people of God where he said, I will make you a holy nation. And then there was people who could take Nazarite vows to do an extra level of holiness, which we'll talk about in Numbers. And so there's different levels of holiness because you're becoming a different level of separatedness from the world and connected to God. But the only way you could become that level of holiness is if God called you. So all of Israel was called to a certain level of holiness, and they had to do these things. And then the priests and stuff were called to an extra level of holiness. Here's the thing. Through Christ and Hebrews and 1 Peter chapter 2, they all make it clear that we've all been called to the holiness level of the high priest. As believers today, we all are called to the level of holiness as high priest. Because we don't just get to go in the tabernacle one time a year. We get to be live in the tabernacle constantly, all the time. 
And so that's the other thing you need to remember. When we go through the purification laws of the priest, you're like, oh my goodness, this is even more up there than it was for everybody else. Guess what? That's you. In Christ today, you are the high priest. Technically, Christ is the high priest, but by the fact that he lives in you, he makes you like high priests to the world. And so remember, like, we are all called to this level of holiness, an extra level. So if you put these together, this leaves you with this chart. So you are clean. And by becoming cleansed, you become clean, or you can be polluted. So most people just kind of stay on this circle. Clean, unclean, clean, unclean. But once you're clean, you can be sanctified and go to holy. Now, most people stay in the middle, and they're always clean, unless they get defiled, which they're called to immediately clean themselves and come back. And then certain people are called to an extra level of holiness. The one thing that God makes very clear in the Bible is holiness and unclean shall never, ever come in contact with each other. Clean and holy can come into contact with each other, and nothing will happen. Unclean and clean can come in contact with each other, and you may just be defiled and have to go through washings, but nothing will holy happen. But if unclean comes in contact with holy, that defiles everything. It's like taking two electrical cords and pulling out your wall and just touching together, and this big giant blue light appears, and a pop in your ears, and all lights in the house go out. How do I know? I've done it. So the, re- the reality is, that's what God is saying. Okay, you ne- these two are never allowed to come together. And if they do, then that is drastic for the nation of Israel. If clean and holy come together, that's okay. Holy is called to minister to clean. If clean and unclean come together, that's not good. You'll be temporarily removed. You'll have to go through cleansing. But it's not like you sin and the whole nation is upset. But the two extremes shall never. So a lot of this system is also... Not just the, oh my gosh, this is so like detailed and ritualistic. Like, what in the world, God? Part of it is just to help them realize how important it is for sin and righteousness not to be together. And so a lot of this, remember, a lot of these details is not an over-realistic, anal, harsh, regimented God just kind of making your life difficult because, by goodness... That's what we were trained in the military. But a lot of things in the military have reasons for why they're so strict and regimented. And the everyday normal person looks at it and says, that's so harsh and stupid. But the person in the military knows exactly what's being taught to them through that regiment. And that's what the book of Leviticus is. And that's what I'm hoping to help you understand is what is the regiment and what story is that regiment trying to tell you. Does this make sense? Because I know this is probably like the most complicated part of Leviticus. Is this clean, unclean, all that kind of stuff. Now, this is what's so cool, too. Because if the unclean comes into contact with the clean, what happens to the clean all the time? It becomes unclean. But then you get to Isaiah, and Isaiah is an unclean man, and God reaches in with a seraphim does with a coal, and he takes the fire of God and touches Isaiah, and the coal does not become unclean. Isaiah becomes clean. Now, if you're an Israelite, you're like, you've never seen that. 
Leviticus makes it very clear that's not how it works. But you can't argue with it because God says it made him clean. And God's never wrong. But Isaiah also begins to foreshadow the total cleansing of the nation through a Messiah. And Jesus comes along one day, and what does he begin to do? He goes up and he touches the woman who's bleeding, and she becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. He touches a dead body, and he doesn't become unclean. Jesus immediately go and wash himself for seven days and stay separated. That's what he should have done. But the dead body becomes clean and alive. And this is what wowed them, because they know Leviticus. Leviticus has been pounded their head. And it's been pounded their head because they have to do it all the time to become clean. And this guy just goes around and starts touching everybody who's unclean. And they would all be like, no, 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 like, are you crazy? It's like my little girl when she decides to drink out of the toilet. And you're like, no! <laughs> but then as you watch it, it's like, they become clean. And that's why they're like, who is this man? And that's what you must understand, is that when Christ comes and lives in us, he makes us clean. So all this in Leviticus is foreshadowing, and that's what you must understand. is like you cannot understand the Second Testament without the first. Because if you don't understand this regimented, complicated ritual all that's so boring, then you're not wowed when Christ just comes around and starts touching everything. You just think, oh, of course, yeah, he's got the power to heal people. But you don't get how revolutionary that is. No prophet. When Moses touched unclean, he became unclean. And he was the greatest prophet ever. And so you must understand, this is, Leviticus is not just teaching you a story, but it's setting you up for the fulfiller of the story. And that's important. And so the next theme is atonement. The only way that you can become clean is through animal sacrifices and washings. That's the bronze altar and the bronze laver. That's how you become clean. So blood atones you. Remember, this is all about faith. The ritual allows you to put faith into action. This comes in two different ways. First, according to D.J. Davies, he believes that sacrifices were concerned with restoring the relationship between God and Israel, between the people within the community. And that's true. One part of atonement is that that you have death in your life, which means death has ruined your relationship with God and death has ruined your relationship with each other. So by then killing something in your place, that removes that death from your life, and now your relationship with God and your relationship with the community is restored. So that's one reason for atonement. Atonement cleanses or undoes what has been brought into your life because of sin. The second reason is this, and this is the main reason, is that it brings cleansing and sanctification. It actually, it doesn't just say, hey, you should die, and now you don't have to die because this other thing has died in your place, which means you get to live and be right with God again, but it also cleanses you so that whatever you did is now removed, washed, taken away. And so there's both a restoration with God in the community and both an actual cleansing of your sin and your defilement. And that's what the blood atonement is doing. And atonement is basically, the word means covering over defilement. Now you have to understand, even though we use words like cleanse, 
It's the, the animal sacrifice is technically not even cleansing you. It's covering. Because the animal can never truly wipe away your sin or take away your sin. The animal can only cover your defilement until Christ comes along and truly cleanses you. So not only is there a foreshadowing of this blood atonement towards Christ, but there is a sense that Christ is bigger and better. And that's the constant theme throughout the Bible. You need to understand that not only does Christ fulfill the First Testament, but Christ goes way beyond anything that the First Testament even imagined and pictured. And that's what makes Christ... It's like in some ways you can say, yes, this is a foreshadowing of Christ because Christ totally fulfilled that and it totally pointed to him. But in other ways you can say it's not a foreshadowing of Christ because he goes so way beyond the picture and the story. He's so much greater than it. It's almost like they have nothing to do with each other. If that kind of makes sense. <laughs> and that's that tension. And so you understand that this is the point of atonement. We'll, we'll, I'll keep repeating this over and over. Now, the word atonement comes from two root words. And the first one is it comes from a word in Akkadian, kapura. And this means to cleanse or to wipe. And so this has more the idea that your sins are being cleansed or wiped clean. Now, you have to remember that, remember, this isn't the technical wiping and cleansing your sins. It's the idea that I'm no longer going to let the sin get in our, in our relationship. Okay, if somebody sins against you, them saying I'm sorry doesn't, and you forgiving them doesn't technically take away that hurt. But by you forgiving them, you're saying I'm not going to let it get in the way of a relationship anymore. It's kind of a clean slate. I'm going to act like it never happened and we'll start all over and keep going on. It's not until Christ comes that it actually becomes a literal clean slate. The second idea that is being communicating here is that copper is another part of where the atonement comes from, and this is a ransom price. And the other thing that atonement is doing is atonement is cleansing you, but it's also buying you back. And so you deserve to die and be separated from God, but this animal dying in your place is buying you back. Now, I know we've heard a lot of this already. We've been in church and read the Bible enough that we kind of, oh, yeah, I know that, I know, I know that. But I'm just helping you understand to think intentionally about atonement and understand that atonement has all these meanings. There's all these meanings are going at play. A lot of times we feel like, oh, that guy just said a little bit differently than that guy, and that guy said just differently a little bit. That I... But you need to understand that, no, they're not just saying it differently. There's four different, completely different things but they're technically all right because they're all doing those four things. So you need to understand there's not just different ways of saying the same thing. It is four different things, but atonement is doing all that. It's doing all that. And that's what I want you to understand right now. So it's like, yeah, 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 I've already heard this, but you need to know that it's, it is all true, but it's separate. And so here's the other thing you must understand. One last point, or one last repetition, the animal is not saving you. Your faith is. Because technically, that animal's death is not forgiving you of your sins. It's God declaring you forgiven after you do it is what makes you clean. And it's really important for you to understand. Now, on the one side, the animal is not truly cleansing you because the animal sacrifice is just you making your faith tangible and it's your faith that is saving you. 
But on the other end, it's not even the animal or the faith that's saving you. It's God declaring you forgiven because you demonstrated faith. Does that make sense? So there's two pieces there. And so the animal allows me to put into action my faith and say, yes, I love you, God, so much that I'm willing to sacrifice my animal. Today, the equivalent today is taking a sledgehammer to your car. I love you so much and want to be in a relationship with you. I'm going to buy a $30,000 car and smash it with a sledgehammer to be right with you again. And because I'm doing that, I'm saying I really, truly love you. I'm not just saying it. It's hard for me to just say it after I did that. Like, I, that meant something to me. And that faith says, I love you, God. Then God looks at you and sees that you're willing to destroy something that could be an idol in your life, something that you're attached to, something that means a lot to you, something that's going to help you stay alive. And you said, that is not as important to me as you are God. And God looks at that and sees your faith and says, you are forgiven. And that's what cleanses you. That's what cleanses you. Does that make sense? And so it's not even your faith. It's your faith that leads to the promises of God and his declaration that you're forgiven. And so all of this is just your way of saying, I mean it, God. You're important. And God looks at that and says, and I will do what I promise. I will forgive you when you make that sacrifice. Because there's one thing that you must understand. Sacrifice without sacrifice is not sacrifice. If you're making a sacrifice and it's not truly a physical, financial, emotional, physical, whatever sacrifice that's going to cost you, threaten you, make it harder for you to live or survive, then it's not truly a sacrifice. And that's the point that David makes when he sins against God at the end of Samuel. And he, the guy says, he, Samuel's like, David says, I want to buy this hill and make a sacrifice on it. And the Arana says, I'll give it to you for free. I love you so much, David, you can have the hill. And David says, no, I have to pay for the hill. And I'm going to pay way more than what it's worth because I'm a king. And what you're asking for is easy for me. Because I get that if it doesn't cost me, it's not a real sacrifice. When you get to Solomon, it says Solomon made 1,000 sacrifices on one day. Why? Because Solomon's like Bill Gates. And putting $50 in the offering plate is not a sacrifice for 50, Bill Gates. He's the king. And when he has to make a sacrifice to God, he says, a true sacrifice for me is 1,000 animals. That hurts. And that's what you must understand. Sacrifice without sacrifice is not a sacrifice. And that's important no matter what it is. Time, emotions, money, physicalness. If it doesn't hurt... Or if it doesn't say, although I don't know if I will be able to make it after that, that's sacrifice. And that's what the book of Leviticus is going to focus on. That's your relationship with God. That's what cleanses you. That's what says, I love you, God. Does it make sense?